Welcome to the Augusta Golf Show podcast. Now, here's John Patrick. Alan Shipnuck's new book is Live and Let Die, Inside Story of the War Between the PGA Tour and Live Golf. Alan is also a partner and executive editor at the Fire Pit Collective. It is a pleasure to welcome Alan Shipnuck back to the Augusta Golf Show. How are you, Alan? I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for doing this. Um, early on, it looked to me like you sort of embedded yourself with Liv when it was first getting cranked up to cover it. When did it go from covering it to going, hey, there, I, there might be a book here? Well, it was really the first tournament in London um, in you know, summer 2022. I hadn't even planned to cover it, um, but you know, my Mickelson biography had just come out and Phil was returning to public life after his exile at Live London. I felt sort of compelled to be there. And no one knew what to expect. You know, they, they'd put Live together on the fly. It was clearly, uh, they were kind of winging it. But when, when I got to the course, it was incredibly impressive infrastructure. Like the build out, it looked like the U.S. Open, you know, the, the suites and the, um, just everything that went into it. It's like, wow, these are serious people. And then, of course, after Phil's first round, I was at his press conference just standing there minding my own business. I got bounced out of there by a couple of security goons and that became a whole thing. And, um, you know, I think to some fans, the live era started sort of began with the excerpts from my Mickelson biography because people had not been paying close attention to what was happening. I don't think partly because the premier golf week, which was a precursor to live, had been kicking around for four or five years and, and it was, it just kind of fizzled. And so, uh, anyway, I just been sort of in the middle of the story, um, for a while and as i was flying home from london on the airplane wi-fi i sent a note to my my long time you know uh book agent and i said what do you think about a book about live golf because there's a lot of energy here and also during that london tournament that was when bryson dechambeau and patrick reed announced they were going to go over there and those are really important signings because the first bat of you know was a lot of older guys on the downside of their career but reed and and dechambeau were young and in their primes and were giving up a long time horizon on the PGA tour. So that was when things got interesting, I think from a personnel standpoint. And so I, I sent this note to my, my, uh, to my agent. He said, Oh, funny you mentioned that. I've already been talking to Simon Schuster about it. Like basically my longtime editor, uh, they'd been in conversation and they were sort of, they'd already agreed I was going to do this book, whether I wanted to or not. So, <laughs> uh, it, it came together really fast. I mean, it was within a, a matter of a week, honestly. You know, you, you, you make a point in the book to spend some time on, a little bit of time on Saudi history to hopefully, I guess, give us a better understanding of how we find ourselves here. How and why, in maybe a Reader's Digest version, how and why did we get here? Yeah, I mean, well, you can, you can go back to 1968. You know, that was the first Gulf Rebellion when Nicholas and Palmer, they were tired of the, tired of the parochial PG of America running their the, the the tournaments and they they created this uprising and led to the modern PGA tour and then you can fast forward to 1994 when Greg Norman had this idea for a a global circuit bringing the the biggest stars together and smaller tournaments and um, you know Tim Fincham humiliated and marginalized Norman and, but then he stole his idea and and then you can you can fast forward to 2018 when Premier Golf League first became public, and that was this idea for 
a breakaway circuit that um, would compete with the PGA Tour. And it was the Premier Golf League who brought the Saudis in as investors, and that was kind of their entrance into golf. Uh, so it, in some ways, this book, you know, Live and Let Die, is, is like this biography of an idea of, of, of how do you how the game has evolved and how it's snaked through the ecosystem. And so I, I bring all these things to life. And of course, yeah, there is, there is a chapter about the history of Saudi Arabia. It might be a little too much for some readers, but it's also important to this moment because, you know, you start with the discovery of oil in the 1930s. And then, you know, this is the very fragile alliance that came about between the U S and Saudi Arabia and then, you know, the road to 9-11 and the rise of MBS and the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, like, all of this stuff is so important to understand. Like, why is Saudi Arabia trying to sports wash its reputation? Why is it trying to launder its its misdeeds? And how did they seize upon golf as a vehicle for that? So uh, you, there's this book kind of captures the here and the now, and it, it's, very, it's, it's very up to the minute in what's been happening, but... I did feel like it needed a sense of history and a little more of a uh, take the readers back in time to understand all these forces that have been building for a very long time that, that brought brought us to this very complex moment for golf. We're talking with Alan Shipnuck here on the Augusta Golf Show. I get a sense, Alan, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that we have moved past where the money's coming from. And yet you go, as you mentioned, go into some of the details of the atrocities from from the Saudis. Are we past? Where's the money coming from? Well, that's one of the insidious things about sports washing is that it works. You know, there a fatigue sets in. You know, reporters get tired of asking the same questions, and the players get tired of answering them, and and the the modern attention span is short, and the news cycle moves fast, and so. You know, early in 2023, live season, someone asked Bryson DeChambeau a sports-watching question, and he said, uh, we already talked about that last year. We're kind of done talking about that. <laughs> um, on some level, he's right. People have moved on. So not everybody. I mean, it's really a moral question for our times. As Saudi Arabia becomes more embedded in professional sports, and it's not going to end with golf. Um, and as their money filters through the entire global economy and ecosystem. Like as consumers, you have to decide, like it's perfectly fine to demonize the players for taking the Saudi money, you know, for the golfers. But if you're driving a Tesla or you ride in Ubers or you fly in Boeing jets, I mean, the public investment fund owns a lot of those companies, you know, big, big chunks of each of them. And so as a consumer, how consistent are you going to be? You can, you can, not watch live golf out of principle, but uh, you know, in your own consumption choices, you're going to have to maybe make some hard decisions as well. If you're going to hold the golfers to that standard. And a lot of people have just accepted that it's just a fact of life um, and in, in the world we live in and they have moved on. So um, it's, it's always going to be an issue, an issue, but when you look at Tim Fincham, I'm sorry, not Tim, well, Jay Monahan mm-hmm. and the way he, you know, he, he made this a, a moral question and, you know, he said, when have you ever had to apologize for being a PGA Tour member? You know, that was one of his primary talking points. And he turned around and he's been now trying to cut a deal with the Saudis. It kind of tells you how quickly the morality question faded away for a lot of people. You know, something I don't think I knew until I, I read this in the book. 
before uh, they settled on Greg Norman, they had pitched this CEO position to Tiger's agent, Mark Steinberg, right? Yeah, it would have made it would have made um, great strategic sense for for Live Golf because you know Steinberg is very powerful, very connected, and his management company controls a lot of the careers of a lot of top players. And so, if they could have gotten Steinberg to buy in, that would have served a few different goals for Live. But uh, you know, Steiny was never that interested. And kind of kept him at arm's length because his interests are through the tour, and you know, Tiger made it very clear his. Just taste for live golf, and so Steinberg's never going to part company with Tiger on any issue. But it, it, it would it was it was smart thinking by Liv if they could have got it done. You know, I, I I know I'm asking you to speculate, Alan. Would we be in a different place if if Greg Norman weren't a part of all of this? Oh, no question. I mean, Norman is so polarizing, in because it, it goes back to his efforts in 1994 to you know, to create a competitor to the PGA Tour. And the old line, you know, of of tour bureaucrats and tour players, they've never forgiven him for what he did. You know, it was a betrayal. And um, I, I did interview Dean Beeman, you know, he's sort of the guy who invented the modern PGA Tour as commissioner. And he had a great line in the book about, you know, for Live Golf to make Greg Norman their their leader, you know, was an act of war. And um, it really was a, a strong statement. Now, it's I, I'm not sure that that Norman Saudi benefactors even realize how polarizing he is. I think they saw him as the great white shark and this big star and this Hall of Famer, and he's very charismatic and very charming. And I think he, they kind of came under a spell a little bit. They may not have even fully grasped um, what it would mean to to hire him uh, in that role, being charitable. Um, so. But yeah, it definitely set the tone that this was going to be contentious, and that that they were not going to try that live golf and the Saudis and Norman were not going to try and go through the normal avenues and be part of the establishment because he's always been this renegade who's trying to blow everything up. So yeah, no doubt. Um, if I mean you know Norman's buddy Nick and contemporary Nick Price, like what if they Nick Price, the commissioner, who's a mild mannered, quiet mm-hmm. person everybody loves. It would have been totally different feeling in the air, but you know Norman brought a lot of baggage. There's no doubt. Speaking of renegade, um, Donald Trump keeps bubbling up with with Live Golf. What role does he play, if any, in all of this? Well, I mean, he's had a, a huge role in Live Golf. It's, you know, three of the tournaments uh, this year were conducted at his tournament uh, at, at his courses, and two last year. So he's been a big part of the schedule and you know in 2022 when Liv was just launching and finding its footing you know that summer at, at Trump Bedminster when he kind of hosted this impromptu MAGA rally and you know two of the most polarizing figures in American life were there um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and I believe hails from your part of the world mm-hmm. and uh, and Tucker Carlson you know then they were chanting anti-Biden Logan's from this press box, you know, with 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 the with Donald Trump right next to him, like that very quickly politicized live and um, and kind of set the tone. So, you know, and and Trump has other roles to play in this. You know, when he was president, 
And uh, after the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, I mean, Mohammed bin Salman was very vulnerable, and there were there were there were moves internationally and in the in the the, the halls of Congress to isolate him and, and to try and unseat him from his position of power in Saudi Arabia. And his staunchest ally throughout all this was Donald Trump. And you know, for for Trump as president to be such an advocate for MBS is what helped him maintain this, this iron grip on on the throne and and Trump knew it. I mean, he 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 told Bob Woodward, you know, his biographer, you know, I saved his ass in talking about MBS. Like he he knew the score and so um it's all part of this really complex geopolitical question and Trump's in the middle of all of it and even even it's kind of funny, but just tracing the history of Breakaway League because that's what, of course, that's what Live is. And I talked a little bit about the ABA and the NBA, but also the USFL mm-hmm. and the NFL. And of course, Trump. I mean, he's just everywhere. <laughs> he played a critical role in the demise of the USFL as the owner of the Washington Generals. And so I get into that history too because it's just sort of germane for the challenges that these Breakaway Leagues face, but also when. When you when you bring Trump onto the scene, it can create some, some static, and uh, yeah, he just keeps popping up in the story, and um, that's part of what made this such a fascinating tale. I mean, you have every important golfer of the last thirty years has been sucked into it, you know, starting with Phil and Tiger and Rory and you know Brooks and Bryson and Dustin, but sucked um, it sucked Jack into it. Jack, yeah, Jack Nicholas. I mean. Um, then you then you have Trump, you have Mohammed bin Salman. Like it's just an incredible amount of star power among the protagonists and uh, Roy McIlroy. I mean, it's it, every, everyone was touched by this story, and so to bring all, all of these characters to life, to all these subplots, all these these complicated questions about um, this nexus of of money and power and politics. It, Really, I think a once-in-a-lifetime story for, for a writer. We're talking with Alan Shipnuck here on the Augusta Golf Show. His book, Live and Let Die, is available. Let's talk about some players. What are your thoughts, Alan? Do you expect to see more players leaving the tour, going to live? Do you think John Rahm is in play? Yeah, I mean, Rahm, he, he's been a true statesman through all of this, and he's had a very measured tone, and He's among top players. Now he said, "Hey, I we're all making a hell of a lot more money because of Live Golf. We should all thank them." You know, he's he's had kind of a conciliatory tone, which has made people think he might be open to the possibility. But he's, at the same time, he's been very clear that you know he values his legacy and he thinks his legacy is through the PGA Tour. And um, so, at the same time, you know, his he has the same agent as Phil Mickelson, and and him and Phil are close friends. So. There's a lot of reasons to speculate. I I think that ultimately, what Rom wants is to play uh, courses that have meaning and to play against the best players in the world. And for now, the, it's probably the tourism is more competitive environment than live golf. And I don't think he's I don't think he's leaving. I don't think he's motivated by money like a lot of others are. And frankly, he's making a heck of a lot playing on the PJ Tour now. So. I'd be surprised if he went, but at the same time, everyone has their price, and he could command quite a hefty one. So we shall see. I mean, that would be a real blow. I think the tour can weather this 
storm as long as they keep Tiger, Rory, Rom, and Jordan Spieth in the fold. You know, they're the biggest stars, the biggest needle movers. Um, but if you lose, if you lose Rom, that that would that would change the, the calculation a little bit. Is the tour having money problems? No question. I mean, that's really what what forced this, you know, so-called merger, um, you know, the framework agreement that they've, which was really just, you know, pinky promises to try and get a deal done. But the, the only concrete thing that came out of the framework agreement was that the lawsuits were dismissed with prejudice, meaning they can't ever be refiled. And that was a huge victory for the tour because their legal fee was, their legal fees were approaching a hundred million dollars. They were, they were bleeding money trying to fight these lawsuits. At the same time, you know, Monaghan wrote some checks he can't cash. You know, he promised the world to the players to keep them loyal, and the sponsors were rebelling because it's already hard enough to, if you're a CEO of a publicly traded company, to justify ten or twelve million dollar outlay on a golf tournament. That price tag goes up to twenty five or thirty, which is what it's going to be in twenty four, two thousand twenty four. Um, that's a big ask, and so the tour is going to reshape itself from this old-fashioned, not-for-profit model into this whole new entity, which is being worked on right now. And the benchmark they've set is $2 billion in investment. And initially, it was conceived as that would come from, from the public investment from, of Saudi Arabia. But now, because that framework agreement was not binding, people have realized it was really just a handshake deal. Um, other moneyed interests, are trying to get in on the deal, whether it's private equity from New York, venture capital from Silicon Valley, or even Hollywood money. And so now the tour has other suitors, and they they can go forward without the Saudis at all and leave behind the baggage and the congressional scrutiny that comes with their money. But the risk there is that Liv goes back to being a very fierce competitor, and now its benefactors are a little upset because they got aced out of this deal, and um, it could touch off a whole new bidding war, and that the tour could, could lose more of its stars. So that's why this whole thing is bogged down and why it's likely to get extended into next year because uh, the negotiations have gotten more complex and there's there's more offers on the table now. And and I'm sure the situation in the Middle East has not made it any easier. No, I mean, that you would never imagine that the upheaval in, in Israel and Gaza could have any effect on professional golf. Like, it doesn't make sense. But the reality is, you know, shortly after the attacks in Israel, the tour put out a a statement of support for, for the Israeli people. And then not long after that, Mohammed bin Salman, who essentially is the benefactor of Live Golf, you know, he publicly supported the Palestinians. And it just throws in a sharp relief that these two these two organizations, the tour and the PIF, are very different. They come from different cultures. They have different value systems. And they're trying to merge and they're trying to synthesize. And those public statements and what they mean just adds another layer of complexity. Like for the PGA Tour, you have to say, are, are these our partners? Like, is this who we want to be tied to long-term? Like, we don't know what's the next geopolitical earthquake. And, um, you know, maybe these are not the, the people that we want to be in business with. And so, uh, yeah, it, in, a, in a very roundabout way, uh, it did have an effect. And it, it, it does, it does leave some hard questions for the PGA Tour as far as it's, its future partners. Do do today? Do you think they'll come to an agreement? 
you know, I, I live in Northern California, and I I know people in Silicon Valley, and I hear I hear things on the golf course. I mean, it's very it's very tenuous. Um, I think that I think if I if I was a betting man right now, I would say that the Saudis are going are going to be out, and then the money's going to come from other uh, other sources. But you know, I think the tour, like I've detected a little more confidence internally because. Now they know they can get the money as, as, as all these other U.S. based firms have raised their hands so they want to invest. The tours realize they don't necessarily need the Saudis to reshape their business and to secure their financial future. So, um, and to some degree, like Live Golf has already taken its best shot, right? Like they, the amount of energy and hype and noise, um, that's all kind of died down. And they did, you know, that first burst of signings, the Dustin Johnsons, the Cam Smiths, the Brysons, the Reeds, like those are big time players, but you look at who they got for 2023. I mean, their best player is Thomas Peters. who's really not a factor in the global game. And I think the tour feels like, you know what, we, we've weathered the storm and we, we have access to money and, we can we can we can press forward without a very complicated complicated relationship with the Saudis. So, I would say it's fifty one percent likely that they're going to consummate this deal without him. But um, it's everything's still on the table. Alan, if he gets the money somewhere else, does Jay Monahan survive all of this? Oh, say that again. I'm sorry, John. If if he gets the money from somewhere else, does Jay Monahan survive all of this? He might survive either way. I mean, he's a very skilled boardroom brawler. Uh, he's made a lot of public missteps, but somehow he gave himself a promotion. You know, he went from merely the commissioner of the PGA Tour to now he's like the CEO, CEO of all of golf through this new company if it, when it gets created. So, um, I mean, on a very basic level, the commissioner's job is to get his players paid. And Monahan's done a spectacular job of that. You know, they were versus on tour were eight million dollars, and now they've gone up to twenty. But, you know, how mad are his players really? The, of course, they didn't like being left in the dark with negotiations, but um, they certainly are enjoying the money. Um, so, yeah, I think I think either way, you know, if, if he consummates his deal and the Saudis are involved, he will he will have tapped into an endless source of funding and taking a competitor off the board, as he called it, you know, which is not a wise move given an antitrust investigation. Um, if, if the money comes from, from Wall Street, uh, that'll, that'll make a lot of players and fans happy that they're, they're not doing business with the Saudis. So I think he's probably okay either way, which is remarkable because he's been at the center of this whole storm and uh, he helped create it, but he may, he may survive it yet. Alan's book is Live and Let Die, the inside story of the war between the PGA Tour and Live Golf. Fascinating, fascinating reading. And I'll tell you what, it's the time of the year. It'd make a pretty good Christmas gift. Alan, uh, congratulations on this. Thank you. I know I know you're getting whipped around a lot. Thank you for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. No, my pleasure. I always enjoy talking to you and the thoughtful questions. And um, I've been doing these interviews for a long time with you, John. So my, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.